Hi, it's Dr. Steve Albrecht, and welcome to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. I am the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. My topic for this half hour is a series of tips and techniques and tools and acronyms for library supervisors and managers. New ones, veteran supervisors, been doing this a long time, the person in charge at whatever level you are at at your library, brand new supervisor coming over to a new facility, staying with your existing facility and taking over a group of people that you used to be peers with and now you're their boss, you're at a deputy director, assistant director level, you want to get up to the director level. All these things are a compilation and a collection of the supervisory tools and techniques that I've been using in my own career as a supervisor and also what I've been teaching for the past 30 years when I teach new supervisors and, and basic supervision and leadership programs, HR programs, as part of the training work that I do. Oftentimes in one and two day programs, three and four day programs, we really get into this stuff. I have a lot of ideas and I want to give you about 15 or so of the tools and techniques and the tips that I have going forward which may be useful for your supervisory career. One of the things I talk about with my coaching clients, and it's oftentimes in libraries, is that they say this person is a problem employee. And they use that phrase, that label, problem employee. And I always think to myself, okay, let's back up. Do you have a problem employee or do you have an employee with problems? It's an important distinction, isn't it? When you think about a problem employee, it's sort of a label, it's a negative label. It's a, it's a value judgment we make about all the things this person has done which drive us crazy. Their personal and professional stressors that have come out in the workplace? Or do we have an employee with problems? And some of these problems could be personal, some of them could be home stressors which cross over to work and work stressors which cross over to home. So I certainly like the phrase employee with problems as opposed to a problem employee. Think about the language we use, how important it is, how critical it is that we accurately identify things. And when I use that type of label, or I hear people use that type of label as problem employee, it's sort of positions that person does it not so think about an employee with problems we may need to address those with an employee assistance program or EAP referral we may need to address it with a with a, some days off that we use as a kind of a, a mini leave of absence we say we're going to give you a suspension with pay we're going to give you some mental health days to take off to, to get kind of away from this sort of burnout modality that you're in we're going to give you additional training we're going to partner you up with somebody there's a mentorship program we're going to put you into we're going to break you off from a, a team project and put you on a part of it by yourself. We're going to take you from a solo project that you're working on and put you inside with the team. Lots of ways that we can address certain behavior or performance problems that we see in employees. But let's stay away from that phrase, problem employee. One of the exercises I do, especially with new supervisors where I have them all in a training room for one or two or several days, is I start off as kind of an icebreaker and I say, okay, on a piece of paper, just on a post-it note, write down the total number of years that you have worked full-time in your life. Now, if you're fresh out of high school or college, that number may be short, but for some people who are new supervisors or have been a supervisor for a while and are just coming to a training like mine, that number can be pretty substantial. So I gather up all the numbers and let's say I have a dozen people in the room and I may come up with a, with a number like, like uh, 120 years, 150 years, 180 years. It always shocks me. Um, oftentimes I will do that in a large room with a number of supervisors that have been working from you know, one to two years to 20 years as a supervisor, and the number will be in the 700s. And I look at all the people there and I say, this collection of people here, all these supervisors that have worked this number of years, 500 or 300 or 600 or whatever it is, is your resources. These are the people that can help you with the situations and, and concerns that you have. 
managing people and performance and projects and money and budgets and dollars and assets and and inventory and what you do inside the library to keep the place running, here's your resources. This is a lot of years of experience gathered in the room together. I do a similar exercise with employees sometimes just to give them a sense of better peace of mind and support for how much we value what they do. You could say, and this is a decent tip here as a start of a staff meeting, just say, you know, I'll write down on a piece of paper the number of years of experience that you've, you've worked full-time, your years of full-time job experience. And you could have six, five, six people working for you, and, and the number could be quite high. You could get into the, to the hundreds, right? You look at people who work around, you say, wow, there's, there's a lot of folks here that have experience. I like that exercise because it values what people do and it values what they have done in their life where they picked up on the job training, courses and programs they've gone to, significant issues that they've dealt with with each other and bosses and patrons and coworkers and things like that. It's kind of a fun exercise to do. You can do it with your peer supervisors in a, in a, in a supervisory boss meeting just as kind of an icebreaker. It's a fun thing to look around the room and see how much years of experience we have with everybody. Or you could do it as a staff meeting with your group of folks as well. Just say how many years have they worked and total that number up. Put it on a post-it note or put, take it off the post-it note, put it on a, a whiteboard, put it on the bulletin board, put a big circle around and go, that's what we have here in terms of years of experience in our facility. Kind of a fun exercise. I think a lot about trust in the workplace and how we can get employees to trust us and how employee trust is a big driver for their performance and their success and their motivation and their enthusiasm for things. And really, when you look at trust building activities with supervisors, it's not a program you can go to. It's not a, a sort of a course that you can take. It's, it's a, a set of, of personal behaviors, interactive behaviors around other employees that demonstrate trust through how we talk to them in a personal and professional level. We make eye contact and we look away from our phones and we stop looking at the computer and we stop taking phone calls mid-discussion. How we treat them as adults, we give them opportunities to succeed, we give them praise. We turn them loose onto projects where we say, you know, I feel comfortable with your ability to do this, go forward and do it and just bring me the results and thanks. Uh, we feel comfortable giving them training and turning them loose on delegated tasks. And the, really a big part about trust, especially with employees, is, is we never lie to them. We are careful in how we say bad news, but we say, look, you know, if there's some budget issues coming up, we may have some staff reductions. I'll get back to you once I know more information, then you do that. But you don't sugarcoat things and say, well, there'll be no staff layoffs this time and everybody's fine. And then two weeks later, you know, three people get laid off. If you think about trust, it says, I have a, a professional relationship with my employees so that they know that I'm not going to micromanage them, I'm not going to be a missing manager, I'm going to tell them the truth, especially about their careers, I'm going to give them opportunities to be successful with training and praise and support, that's how we build trust. One of the things I do in workshops with supervisors is to write down on an easel pad and ask them this question, what is your biggest challenge? Or, more accurately, when you think about the people you supervise, who is your biggest challenge? It could be Larry, it could be Two, it could be a certain project or situation where you have an interaction with elected officials or other teams or departments is stressful. It could be a patron who's your biggest challenge. It's kind of an interesting exercise to sit down with a cup of coffee and a piece of paper and say, what is my biggest challenge at work? What are my top three biggest challenges at work? People, projects, patrons. Who are my biggest challenges? Staff members, bosses, electeds, patrons. Who are my biggest challenges? What are my biggest challenges? When we look at that list, we kind of can get a sense of priority. We can get a sense of how we are going to address these issues, 
how we can get some help and support from our boss or boss's bosses about this and, and stop, stop looking at it and saying, well, there's nothing can be done and saying, what are my potential solutions for these biggest challenges? If it's people oriented, what am I going to have to say to get a change in behavior performance, whether it's patron conduct or behavior or, or staff member conduct or behavior? If it's a, a big project, a capital improvement project, a budget project, something that I don't have a lot of expertise in, who can I connect with? Who are my resources above me, my peer supervisors, that I can get help and information on? What do you plan to do about each thing? What are you doing about each issue? It's either a, a who challenge or a what challenge. What are you doing about each issue now? What's working for you and what needs to stop? What is not working for you? And so look, look at the breakout for the two or three biggest challenges, personal challenges of, of people or, or professional challenges of projects, and say, what's working for me, what's not, what need do I need to do differently? Whether you're talking about challenges involving people, whether it's patrons or, or coworkers or bosses or people that work for you as subordinates, or you're looking at how you do certain things in terms of the projects that you're tackling, one of the acronyms I often use and this is what's called an old OD or organizational development tool, it's been around forever, is keep, stop, start. I use the phrase a lot. Personally, to myself, I kind of do an inventory, maybe at the six-month mark or the one-year mark. You know, I'll sit down with an adult cocktail on New Year's Eve and say, what do I need to keep doing in my career because it's working? What should I stop doing in my career because it's not working, it's not value-added, it's a waste of time, effort, and money? And, and this is probably the biggest one, what should I start doing? This is a valuable tool in two ways. One, you can use it yourself as a self-assessment and say, what do I need to keep doing because it's working? What should I stop doing because it's not? And what should I start doing? And it certainly is a valuable team-building approach. And when I have the ability to get in front of people on the easel pad in teams and say, okay, let's look at our department or let's look at our library. Let's look at the, the totality of this, this enterprise here we call the library. Or let's just look at the specific department where we work and say, let's make a brainstorming list of the things that we need to keep doing. You know, it, they're, they're useful. They save us money, make us money. They, they drive revenue. They're good for the patrons. They're good for the staff. Let's look at the things we need to stop doing. Waste of time, bureaucratic causes patrons headaches, causes staff member headaches, stop doing them. And then the last one, which is kind of the overarching and sort of a big one, is what, we, what should we start doing? What are, what are some ideas about things that we could do, do behaviorally, you know, performance-wise, policy-wise, code of conduct-wise, operationally, that different? The key part, oftentimes employees will say, don't take these away from us. We, we like these, you know, whether it's you know, we have uh, coffee and donuts on Friday in the break room. Don't take those things away. Keep on keeping on with those things. Stop doing things that are a bureaucratic waste of time and effort. Stop doing things that make it tougher for us to do our jobs with each other and with the patrons. And then kind of the biggest one is, is what do we start doing? What are some of the big projects or big ticket issues or big programs or big policy changes that we can start talking about doing differently? The keep, stop, start process for you personally as a supervisor can be very useful to say, okay, Let's figure out what's costing me time and effort and money in, in my personal life and stop doing those things. What things are costing me time, money, and effort in my professional life and stop doing those things. What should I keep doing because it's good for me? Fitness, get more sleep, read more, whatever it happens to be. And then what do I need to start doing looking forward? What are my goals personally and professionally looking forward? I like this exercise, keep, stop, start. I do it as, at least personally for myself at least once or twice a year. But you can do it with staff. And what it says to staff members is, I hear you. 
Let's talk about some things that drive you crazy or talk about some things that you like a lot, some things that you're thinking about that we might be able to get done. Now, when you do the keep, stop, start exercise, one thing you have to say to people is, I can't make promises that I'm going to be able to snap my fingers and have this happen. I may need to get permission from HR or elected officials, city council, board of supervisors, library board, something like that, or the library director. If you're the library director, maybe you can make stuff happen with the snap of your fingers. Some stuff you may have to get permission from from some elected official. Some stuff may take some time to get from where you talk about let's do it to where it actually comes into fruition. That could take six months or, you know, or longer, depending on how, how significant it is. And some things people say, well, you know, we like scotch in the break rooms. That's not going to happen. So I don't say that we, we criticize the ideas that come up, but we have to prioritize them. So one of the first things I do with people after we've done the keep, stop, and start brainstorm is to prioritize those and go, okay, which one of these should I take to council? Which one of these should I take to the director? Which one of these should I take to city manager or county, county official? Which one should I take to the library board? Let's prioritize these. Some of them may not make the list. So when you think about the keep, stop, start exercise, it says to employees, I want you to tell me what we need to do differently around here or what you'd like us to do differently or think about it as a group or individually. If I can make some of these things happen, I will. It's a useful exercise. Keep, stop, start. Speaking of useful exercises, one of the things I often do with groups of supervisors, and it's kind of fun to do with employees as well, is best boss, worst boss. When I do it with supervisors, what I say is write down the characteristics, traits, behaviors, skills of the best bosses you ever worked for from, from your first job in high school till now. What are, what are the characteristics of the best bosses you ever worked for? Opposite question, of course, after they finish that list is what are the characteristics, traits, behaviors, sins, so to speak, horrible qualities of the worst boss you ever worked for? Now, as I see people work on the best boss and worst boss list, what's always funny to me is how quickly they can come up with a much longer list for the worst boss than they can for the best boss. When we do a debrief and we share amongst each other, lots of commonalities in the best boss list. My best, my, the best boss I ever worked for was supportive, communicated with me, gave me praise, uh, empowered me, um, uh, talked to me about new projects and delegated things to me and trusted me to get things done. My new boss was kind. My, new, my, my best boss was patient. My best boss um, gave you know, praise and parties and support and rituals and ceremony and captured us doing things well, gave me opportunities in, in, in to be successful with promotions and things like that, treated me like an adult, treated me fairly with diversity, treated, treated me with respect. All those things come out pretty, pretty common amongst the best boss characteristics. When I look at the worst boss list and I hear from people, it's always surprising to me how horrible some of the bosses they worked for. Stole from me, sexually harassed me, was a drunk, physically assaulted me, threatened me, um, kept things quiet, lied to me, took credit for my great ideas, never gave me opportunity to promote, uh, treated me poorly, bullied me, lots of worst boss characteristics. I think sometimes when I do this with managers and supervisors, especially new ones, what I say to them is, okay, we've done the best boss, worst boss list, which list do you want to end up on with your employees? And you know, supervisors, that our employees make best boss, worst boss lists all the time. Now, they may not do it together as a group. They may do it over coffee in, in, in the break room or outside of work. But they certainly do it to themselves inside their own head where they compare your supervisory style to the best boss or worst boss they ever had. Which list do you want to end up on? When I do this list with employees and I say, okay, best boss you ever worked for, worst boss you ever worked for, and I know that I'm doing it on, depart on behalf of a department or a team or a, or a library organization, I will say, okay, without naming names, give me the best boss or worst boss characteristics, traits, behaviors 
for this facility so that I can feed some of this back to the supervisors who aren't in the room, managers and supervisors, directors who are not in the room, and say, there are some things we need to work on for the, to be more like the best bosses and some things we need to stop doing to be less like the worst bosses. So I think it's a decent exercise for the frontline employee group to do, but it's really more valuable for the brand new supervisors and managers and supervisors to do to say, which list do you want to end up on? And do you have a specific kind of marching orders or set of plans or guidelines now to, to use a roadmap, so to speak, to keep off the worst boss list and to, and to get onto the best boss list on how you treat your employees? I think the answer for that is for sure. I talk a lot in my work about coaching, and I've done some coaching webinars for Library 2.0. We talk about the coaching skills necessary to help employees with performance or behavior issues, whether it's improving performance or, or stopping certain negative behaviors. It's improving performance by helping the employee promote or get to the next level if that's what they want to do. And it's stopping certain non-value-added activities, stopping certain behaviors which are negative, which put the employee at risk for discipline. Coaching is a pre-discipline conversation about performance or behavior. Now, once we stop coaching and we say to the employee, you're on notice that this is a discipline conversation, it's no longer coaching as discipline. Interestingly, and you know this maybe perhaps from your experience, coaching is also a post-discipline conversation. Employee comes back from suspension. Employee comes back from harassment or comes back from some sort of malfeasance where they got a pretty serious policy violation. We say, welcome back to the organization. Let's talk about what you do or don't do so that doesn't happen to you again. You put your career at risk. But for the most part, it's, it's you know, 80% of the time is a, a pre-discipline conversation. Part of my pre-discipline conversation with employees is used to the three C's. And the three C's in the com- coaching discussion is communicate, clarify, and commitment. Communicate, clarify, and commitment. So here's the part about the coaching conversation. We can do a really good job communicating with the employee. Here's the problems, poor performance or behavior I want you to address. We can clarify so they can see it from outer space. It's clear as, as, as day what changes we want this person to make. You know, if it's attendance, we want you to start coming in exactly at 8.30, be ready to work by 8, 8.31, you know, clocked in and ready to go by 8.31. The, the clarification part and the communication part are easy most of the time. Most employees are not going to argue with about those things. Where we fall off the table in terms of the follow-through and the getting the desired results for us with coaching is the commitment stage. Imagine that you say to the employee, um, b- based on all the things we've just talked about, can I, can, I, can I have your solemn promise that you're going to come to work on time? What are they always going to say? Of course. Oh, sure. Mainly they say that to take the heat off themselves and also to get out of the room because this is an uncomfortable conversation. And they want you to think that they're going to be different. And sometimes they are going to be different and many times they're not. They continue to be acceptable for some span of time and then the behavior falls off the table again and they go back to their original problems. We need to be better at the commitment piece. And I oftentimes foreshadow when I'm doing coaching conversations with employees, and I'm, especially we're getting down to the final ones. You know, it could be one conversation I have or many conversations of coaching with an employee. I get down to the last part. I say, now, here's where I get your commitment to change. Be different in your performance. Be different in your behavior at work. And here, I don't want to just hear from you to say, yes, I, I'll promise to be different. I want to talk about what you plan to do differently. Based on the things we talked about, how are you going to be different? And what kind of commitment can I expect from you? So, you know, the worst way to do the, commit, the communicate, clarify, and commit discussion is to ask them a sort of a yes-no question for a commitment. Do I have your promise that you're going to do this? And are we all good? Or, you know, the, the things we say which the employee can answer yes-no to. They leave the room and they go, Whew. 
okay, I got out of that one, and maybe they plan to change uh, permanently, but oftentimes they, they'll change temporarily. Sometimes they won't change at all. The commitment piece can be connected really, really effectively to a final coaching question that I got from one of my colleagues, Glenn Kramer. Uh, Glenn is a, um, a, law, a labor law lawyer in California, in Southern California. And he works only for organizations, for, for public and, and private sector organizations. So he's you know, a management lawyer on the, protecting the, the public sector and private sector organizations as best as he can. I think he's a very bright guy. He's a great presenter. And, and oftentimes when I watch his stuff, especially in, in, in conferences and things, he always gives me a, a really good ideas. And one of them was to have this final coaching sentence built into your discussion with the employees. And, and it starts like, like you would expect, which is based on what we've talked about. Are there any obstacles? Are there any reasons why you can't do the things that we've just discussed in order to correct your performance or behavior in the areas that we talked about. Now, it's a yes-no question, but it's a really a pinpoint one. Can you tell me if there are any obstacles, problems, things that I need to know about before we end this meeting that is going to interfere with your ability to do the things we've talked about? So basically, it's a yes-no question, but we're putting this person, the coach E, on notice that now is the time to say, well, you know, boss, I could use some training in this area or I could use, you know, two months to catch up to speed on how to use this piece of software or whatever it happens to be. Because you jot down not only how you ask this question in your coaching notes, and we should be keeping coaching notes, and we jot down the employee's answer. In fact, I quote the employee's answer back to them in an email. You said, when I asked you, are there any, any issues or obstacles, you said, quote, no, I think I can do what we talked about. I just need another couple of weeks to get caught up on the software, whatever it happens to be. And you repeat back to them what they've said in an in a email so that later on they can't say, well, you know, uh, I, I never got trained and, and uh, you know, I didn't tell you about the part where I needed this, this, and this in order to be able to do these things or I had some off-the-job issues. And, and this it prevents this, this clarification, commitment, statement, sort of verbal contract that we come up with this with this person, the employee, before we turn them loose after the last coaching meeting, can really pin them down as to their responsibilities about these behavior performance changes. So I like Glenn Kramer's approach, which is to get the issue about compliance built into the solutions. Based on what we've talked about, you're going to get a rooster, you're going to hire a wake-up service, you're going to get a new alarm clock, you're going to get, get two alarm clocks and put them across the room in your red room so that you'll be able to get to work on time. Are there any other issues or obstacles or things we need to talk about about you coming to work on time that we can address right now before I turn you loose in this last coaching discussion? Given that set of boundaries, the employee is going to have to say, yes, I, I plan to be you know, follow through and, and commit to the things we've talked about, or I don't. And if they have a I don't discussion, then you can bring it up and say, okay, let's continue to talk about what we needed to fix those things so that you know that once I turn you loose, it's up to you to comply with the performance or behavior issues that we talked about. So I like this last sort of commitment statement that, that Glenn Kramer talks about. Here's an activity that you can do with your employees. It's an, an activity you might be able to do with your peer supervisors, especially if you're at department head or manager level. And it's called the ABC activity. And the ABC activity is all about one thing, fine-tuning, developing, and really strengthening our mission statement. Every department should have a mission statement. If you look at city government, we all have mission statements. And, and if we look at a city or county entity in general, it's got this 
strategic plan, strategic values, mission statement, quite long and quite lengthy, a lot of stuff there. Oftentimes I'll get together with department heads of a city or a county and a lot of entities are represented. In that discussion, I will say to each of them, the department heads or the, the assistant department heads or the managers that support those departments, come up with, for your particular department, a mission statement that covers these ABCs. A is activities, B is benefits, and C is customers. A is activities. What do we do in this particular department? If it's the city clerk's office, we keep the historical records for the city. We store them and, 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 and protect them and provide them to the public. That's what we do as our primary activity. What are the benefits, or who does it benefit? It benefits the city, it benefits the elected, it benefits council, it benefits the taxpayers, it benefits lawyers, it benefits people that need this, the, these documents. And then the, the C, customers, who, who do we serve? We serve the citizens first and foremost, we serve other departments, other cities, state government, federal government, whatever it happens to be. So you can see that it's pretty complex. The activities, benefits, and customers discussion could go on for a good chunk of time. But the, the, the exercise that I give for these department heads or these managers about their particular department is boil down what you do after you review the activities, benefits, and customers, boil down what you do to a long sentence, not a 25-paragraph, you know, we do this and we do that, we do bullet points on that. Boil down what you do to a long sentence. For example, you might say that the public works department in a city or a county uh, is the caretaker for the roads, bridges, and buildings for the city. Something like that. And you say, okay, well, that doesn't cover everything that they knew. No, but it boils it down to a, an overarching theme where we can get down to one sentence. Many times when I go into city halls and county buildings, things like that, I see really cool posters and really, really impressive mission statements and things that are written in all this embossed paper and in gold letters. And they go on for pages, right? There'll be, there'll be 16 sentences about what we do. Can you say, our activities in the library are X, Y, and Z? The people who we benefit with those activities in the library, including patrons and the, and the community and electeds and our employees, is, is this, this, and this. And the customers we serve ranges from the city, city and the county and citizens and kids and students and people are experiencing homelessness and people that have literacy issues and citizenship questions and legal questions and all kinds of things that we provide to our customers, our patrons, right? That's a long list. There's a lot of stuff there between the activities and benefits and customers. But can you boil down, and this is the challenge, can you boil down what you do in the library as a library entity in a long sentence? 25, 30 word sentence, can you boil it down to what we do? And I think it's a real challenge because, because it's kind of a, this answer creates more answers type of an exercise. And it's, it's tough for many of us to be able to edit what we do down to a, a phrase. But I think the value of that is be able to tell people, and it's what in, in sales we call it an elevator speech. An elevator speech is what you could say to somebody what you do in the time it takes to ride the elevator from the, from the ground floor to the, to the 15th floor. Someone says, you know, what do you do? And you say, well, I sell insurance. And I, I help families with their long-term needs about life insurance, and I sell term life and, and uh, universal life insurance. I mean, that's an elevator speech. You can get it out in, in a couple of minutes. What I look for is how do we get an elevator speech out of what we do in government, especially in library? How do we use the ABCs part, activities, benefits, and customers? And can we create a single-sentence mission statement that is eminently repeatable, memorized by, by everybody, and said to other departments and, and to patrons in such a way that we're proud of what we do. I think it's an interesting exercise.
Last thing to talk about in this podcast for management tools, tips, supervisory tips is meeting behavior. Think of all the meetings that we have. And I work a lot in government. The public works guys that, that are out in the field with the orange shirts on and the trucks and such, they have tailgate talks. In, in days of old, the supervisor, the foreperson, the foreman, the lead, whatever you call this person, would stand on the back of the tailgate with the employees gathered around out in the, in the yard or out in the field. And let's talk about safety. Here's the safety issue for today. It's about goggles or, or excavations or using chainsaws or whatever it happens to be. They have a tailgate talk. All the supervisors would agree that that's what they're going to talk about to their respective work crews, and they would stand on the back of the tailgate and have that conversation. Sometimes we would see um, departments have stand-up meetings. A stand-up meeting is a five-minute meeting. It doesn't involve chairs and coffee and things like that. People just stand up in the, in the uh, library or in the facility where they're in, and they say, here's what we're going to do today. Uh, if you've ever watched a, a show about restaurants or chefs, they'll have a a stand-up meeting or a, or a short conversation with the wait staff about here's the food we're selling tonight and here's the wine we're trying to move and whatever happens to be. So think about the number of meetings that we have and what kind of choices we have. Could be a stand-up meeting, could be a tailgate talk, could be a safety conversation, could be a pretty lengthy, in-depth conversation of a meeting which takes takes anywhere from you know one to two hours. Um, shorter tends to be better. And then the one thing I want you to think about for all of our meetings, and I'll talk about this the next time we, we, we get together on the podcast, is the prevention of idea killing. Nothing ruins a meeting faster than an employee, and sometimes a supervisor, but most often an employee who says, this is a stupid idea, we're not going to do that, and if you've been here as long as I have, you know that stuff doesn't work. There's lots of variations for the idea killer. I like a strong defense against the idea killer is to say, we don't allow idea killing here. Use me as an excuse if you want to. Say, I just, I just listened to this thing from Steve, and we talked about this thing which drives me crazy in meetings, which I've seen occasionally for us, which is idea killing. Someone will say, what, do we, what if we try this, or how about that, or what about this new approach, or can we change this? And then somebody in the group will say, that's not going to work. And, and by being dismissive like that in the idea killing process, it really stifles any kind of brainstorming or creativity. I, as a meeting leader, I'm not going to allow idea killing. We will evaluate things later on. We'll prioritize things later on. But we're not going to judge them, especially value judge them, two seconds after the person says it. I think one of the strengths that you have as a leader, especially in meeting behavior, is enforcing this idea-killing prohibition. And what it does is it frees up people to say, what about this and how about that? And we get a little bit more creative. We get a little more brave, a little more honest, a little more descriptive in the solutions that we come up with. And, and by being more creative, because we don't think we're going to get our ideas shot down by somebody, including by a boss, we tend to come up with better answers and better ideas. I'll talk more about meeting behavior and some of the other supervisory techniques and tools, acronyms, things like that on the next time we do the podcast. But I'd like to thank everybody for listening. So my thanks to the producer of the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargadon from Library 2.0. For more information, visit Steve and me over at Library 2.0 website, library20.com. Until next time, on behalf of Steve Hargadon, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. Thanks for listening to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast.